My name is Jenny. My name is Ted. My name is Gray. And, and this, this is Anamorphology. The Invasion. The Visitor. The Encounter. The Message. The Predator. The Capture. The Stranger. The Alien. The Secret. The Android. The Forgotten. The Reaction. The Chain. The Unknown. The Escape. The warning, The Decision. The Spoke. The Departure. The Sound. The Discovery. The Proposal. The Threat. The Conspiracy. The Revelation. The Deception. The Suspicious. The Unexpected. Sacrifice. The Diversion. The Beginning. Chronicles. Hey everyone, this is a surprise two-parter. We had some technical difficulties with the second half of our footage, and the episode was already pretty long. So we're giving you this part, and we're going to reconvene in a couple days to record part two, which means you all have the chance to give us all your questions and comments on the Horpager Chronicles in the next few days, and we'll address them on the air. So send them at us, and uh, now for the episode. Okay, Horpager Chronicles. The second Chronicles book. That's what we read this week. Yeah, it is. So do we want to give some opinions, first impressions, before I do the summary? Yes. I really want to hear what Gray thought about this. All right, Gray. Um, I really liked it, and also I really hated it. I'm a little torn. Tell us about both responses. <laughs> so it's a really great example of why I think the Animorphs series was so enduringly popular, because it's a really great standalone story. But if you've read the... 20 odd books leading up to it it's even cooler because you're kind of getting these internal references Mm -hmm. that she makes and you have a better sense of this episode in the context of the war against the Yerks. this is you know a few years worth of time 30 years ago but it provides some interesting backdrop for the rest of the story so that was kind of cool And I liked getting some of those references, although I recognize that I definitely missed things. I also, it it was such a tragedy in so many senses of that word. And people, as per usual, made some (laughs) real terrible decisions that I was very upset about. So I also hated it a little bit because overall, plot-wise, this was a dark and terrible book, but done really well. Okay. Ted, what was your take? I love the Horkbajir Chronicles so much. It's wow, so good. Nice. It's so funny. It's it's like a redux of the Andalite Chronicles in so many ways. Mm-hmm. But I feel like most of most of the things are improved upon in this version. Mm-hmm. Including the like it has the same it has some of the same problems, like a weird rushed ending, and like it's kind of like it doesn't quite fit in with what we've learned about the characters in history so far. But I mostly like mostly I think the changes are for the better. And I think that it feels, the prose feels a little more middle grady, especially mm-hmm. coming right after the David books. Mm-hmm. And like, I feel like the characters don't really have any time to do anything other than advance the plot, which mm-hmm. is kind of tough. Mm-hmm. But it's a really successful book about colonialism and imperialism mm-hmm. and the horrors of war. And it's remarkable how like, interesting and effective it is even though there are like no people in it like the anamorphs are not mentioned once except for the like framing device mm. so I, there, there are a lot of things that i really like about it my three major themes are intelligence colonialism horrors of war so, yeah. yeah yeah exactly yeah and i think that's the kind of stuff that the anamorphs series does really well mm-hmm. and so i think it's I don't feel I don't feel the weight of the tragedy as heavily, perhaps because I already like sort of knew it was coming, but also a little bit of the like you need to have this moment so that the animorphs can be the heroes down the road. 
What's Jenny. your take, Jenny? Yeah, you know, I liked it less than I was expecting to, and less than I remembered liking it, although given the number of things in this that I did not remember happening, such as the entire existence of the Arn, <laughs> I don't think I probably read this that many times. So maybe I didn't like it all that much back when I was 13 or whatever. But yeah, it I remembered it primarily as a romance, which it is not. I think it's Oh, I love I love the romance. It's Yeah, but it's not primarily a romance. Right. Like It's not it's, as feel good as the Lauren and uh Elfingor. And totally end when the Lauren Elfingor relationship is terrible. Uh but yeah, it's it's sort of a messed up romance in a really interesting way, but it's not like like I wouldn't read this to be like, oh, I want to revisit that great romance. Like oh, yeah. that's not Definitely that's not. not the button. Definitely not. I feel like there just aren't it's well done in a lot of ways. I discovered this with the Andalite Chronicles too, where I'm like, oh, I'm primarily interested in the adventures of these kids fighting this war on our world and our time. And even though there are a lot of very interesting themes in this, it doesn't feel as like central to the things that I'm interested in in the Animorphs. So uh-huh. I mean, a lot of that's just personal preference. I think I had seen people saying online that, like, yeah, you know, you read Harkavir Chronicles as an adult, you get a very different perspective on the romance, and that was that was definitely how I felt about it. Yeah, because like that. when you're 13, you're like, a romance? They did the equivalent of a Harkavir kiss. This is the most amazing thing I've ever read, and that was not really the takeaway this time. I agree with that. Do so you guys want to hear what happened in it? I do want to hear. That's great because I totally forgot I was doing the summary. Good luck. Yay! Keep it to 60 seconds. <laughs> It's a good thing we have that time matrix. So this book exists in a framing device where Tobias is flying to visit the free Horkvajir. You all remember them. They live in that valley. He book goes, 13. Book 13, yeah. He goes and uh, goes to visit them and Jeremy starts telling a story. And the story that he tells is this whole book. And it starts with a young Andalite named Aldrea, who's with her father, Ciro, might recognize that name, on the Yerk homeworld. And this is back before the start of the war. It is the start of the war. Um, she's there when the Yerks rebel against the Andalites, steal some spacecraft, steal a whole bunch of Yerks, like from the Yerk pool, and fly off to start their conquest of the galaxy. And uh, her father's all betrayed and disgraced and... Alarin is there too. He's serving under Ciro and he's like, you were such a fool to trust them. So then we pick up a number of years later when Aldrea is like maybe a teenage Andalite or whatever their equivalent is. And they are, she's going with her parents and her brother to be the first Andalites on the Horkbajir homeworld. And it's sort of like a pity assignment for her father, like go investigate these people, make sure there are no Yerks there. And her mom's a biologist and is like excited to study the world. And she's like, can't believe I'm stuck here. But she... She befriends the second point of view character, who is Dakhami, who is Jarahami's grandfather, we already found out. And he is what the Horkajir call a seer. He is different, they keep saying about him, which means that he has basically like human level intelligence or Andalite level intelligence. I don't really know the exact, you know, most of the Horkajir are less intelligent than humans anyway. And, and he just is much, much smarter than the rest of them. And the Horkajir kind of have this belief that, like, seers are sent when the people are going to need to find a new direction. And so they make friends. She teaches him a bunch of stuff. We find out that she has stolen the morph, like, morphing power. Like, she secretly has the power to morph, even though she's not supposed to. So we also, at some point in here, start getting the point of view of a Yerk named Esplan 9466, 
which you may recall is the year who later becomes Visser 3. I'm probably just going to call him Visser 3, even though he doesn't have that rank yet. And he doesn't have a host yet and is, like, really excited about getting one. So we kind of end up, we'll see a bunch of, his, like, world building from his perspective, like the Yurks getting new hosts and all that. So Aldrea finds out from Dak that there were some hork that, like, got attacked by little clumsy creatures. And she's like, those sound like Geds which are the host bodies the Yerks have been using. And she's like, oh no, the Yerks are here. And she races back to her home scoop where her family is because she knows her father is going to send a transmission to the Andalite homeworld and the Yerks are going to find them. And she's too late. He sent the transmission and she's like just outside the scoop when the Yerks blast it from space and kill her family, which is obviously devastating to her. And uh, she and Dak get attacked by two hork controllers, one of which is Vista 3. And Dak learns to use violence for the first time. They flee into the depths of the Horkbajir homeworld. The Horkbajir homeworld is sort of this very, very narrow valley with super tall trees. And at the bottom of the valley is this blue mist full of monsters. They flee into the mist because they're being chased by Yerks and fight some monsters. Aldrea kills one with her tail and it's really cool. And end up going through the mist and into this like other part of the world that the Horkbajir don't know is there, where there's like a rift going down to the molten core of the planet. And in the sides of these cliffs are all of these like carved dwellings. And they find uh, people there called the Arn, which are sort of like flying squirrels, really colorful. And they are the like uber intelligent creators of the Horkbajir, it turns out, when like the climate of their planet got disrupted. And they're like, we need some tree herders. Their thing is biology. They're all biologists. They only have one science they care about. And they artificially constructed these Horkbajir and um, made them peaceful and like also built these monsters, biologically created these monsters to live in the mists. is like, that's great. You know how to control the monsters. We're going to control the monsters and we're going to use them to attack the Yerks. And she has this whole thing where, like, Dak is like, violence is terrible, or people don't know violence. And she's like, well, you have to learn violence, better be a killer than a slave. And she gets the other Horkbajir to imitate Dak when he starts attacking the Yerks. The Yerks have built this, like, Yerk pool and are, like, infesting tons of hosts. And uh, Aldrea and Dak lead this attack on the Yerk pool and devastate the Yerks and lead the other Horkbajir, not the controllers, the, like, uninfested Horkbajir, in this violent attack on the Yerks and sort of introduce them to violence. Aldrea manages to sneak into a Yerk fighter and alert the Andalite homeworld. They're like, yeah, we'll send people at some point. And she's like, great. So they lead a guerrilla war for seven months where they're hiding out with a bunch of Horkbajir, like in the mist and stuff, and attacking the Yerks who are just taking tons and tons and tons of hosts. They're starting construction, they're mining and they're building spaceships and they're innovating on technology. And then the Andalites show up and are like, wait, there are how many Yerks here? They've built how much? Oh, crap, we are not prepared for this. And Aloran is there. Aloran is in charge. And Aloran's like, yeah, our main fleet is somewhere else. We didn't really take your threat seriously. Sorry. So the Andalites don't save them. They just join. They just intensify this war. So they're losing this war. They are taking refuge with the Arn, who have biologically engineered themselves so they can't be infested. But now they're just being killed. And uh, Aldrea and Dak notice that there are some Andalites guarding a door, like very casually, but they're always there. So they sneak in and find out that the Andalites, uh, with maybe some help from the Arn, with Arn technology, have been developing a quantum virus to attack the Horkbajir, which 
As we know, that was like Elrond's great war crime we found out in the Andalite Chronicles. So Aldrea finds this out and is like, this is the most horrible thing. Uh, and she decides that she will turn her back on her own people and steals the canister of all the virus that has been created and then like destroys the lab. And she and Dak run with this canister, but like Aloran's after them. And that's when the Yurks like attack their home base, like their camp. And so Dak and Aldrea get taken captive by Visser Three, who tries to infest Aldrea, but fails. And uh, they manage to escape, but the canister gets like thrown out of the spinning spaceship. And one of the other Horkbajir finds it and is running towards them with it open. And they see him like get hit by the virus and fall. And they run away into the deep and are like, maybe we can stay out of the virus for a while. Aldrea is in a Horkbajir body and decides that she is going to stay with Dak, she's going to permanently turn her back on her own people. And even though there's this quantum virus that destroys Horkbajir, she's going to get herself trapped in this Horkbajir body and be with Dak until it is the end. That's sort of where Jarahami's story ends. He says, he tells Tobias that they lived long enough to have a son named Ciro, who is Jarah's father. And we end the book with them telling Tobias that Ket and Jarah named their daughter after him. Uh, they named her Toby, and they say Toby is different. And Tobias is like, that's nice. Wait, what? And it turns out that Toby is also a seer. So this sort of biological blip that the Arn are like, yeah, we never got rid of that one gene where every once in a while there's a heart who's super smart, has been passed down to Toby. And now uh, the idea is that like this Valley of Free Heart Bajir, like she's the seer that they have to lead them to the next, the next thing. The end. Well summarized. Thanks. A lot of stuff happens. <laughs> yeah. So uh, where do you want to start? I want to talk about a bunch of stuff. Do you want to start with intelligence or timestamps? <laughs> Let's start with timestamps. There were some timestamps. There were, and I'm delighted that there were, because I think it gives us some interesting insights into the various people who are part of this conflict. So oh. uh, we get two timestamps. Um, one of them is uh, during kind of when Ciro's kindness happens for the first time. Mm-hmm. The second is kind of the three years later timestamp. So the first one that we see, Andalite date year 8561-2, Yurk date, generation 685 mid-cycle, Hork-Bajir date, early warm, Earth date, 1966. And then Ciro's kindness happens, and we get a timestamp again two years later. Andalite date year 8563.5, Yurk date generation 686, early cycle, Work Bajir date late cool, Earth date 1968. And I think that that is very cool uh, for a couple of reasons. One is we know exactly from an Earth perspective when these things took place, yeah. which is great. 1968 is Dak, so Jeremy's grandfather. He's old enough by the end of this book to have a kid. So that's 30 years ago, roughly 10 years per generation. So I think that means 15 years per generation because you have two generations to get right. to Dak. So, so yeah, they have kids young. They have kids young, um, but also it seems like maybe don't live terribly long since right. the grandfather is no yeah. longer around and neither is the father. Which does bring up an interesting question. We had wondered how Jara and Kat had gotten married, which is kind of unanswered. They were not born into freedom, presumably. 
Or maybe they were and they got captured really late. Right. But go on with your That's a really analysis. interesting yeah. point. There are a lot of Horkbajir timeline questions, like, and which also bring into question Animorphs timeline questions. Yeah. Let's finish talking about the dates okay. first. Uh, so then Andalite Generations, I think we had talked about in the Andalite Chronicles that it didn't seem like actually that much time had passed since the beginning of this war. Mm-hmm. And now we know that that is true. Ciro's kindness happened in 66. Morphing technology kind of around the same time. So they've had a lot of, they have a lot of rules around this kind of technology and morphing in general, considering both of those things have been around for like a hot second. What do you mean a lot of rules around it? Well, like they, they have all these rules about morphing, like who's allowed to do it and do they? Well, like the, they're horrified. Consistently, people in the Andalite military structure are horrified that Elfengor gave morphing technology oh. to the well, Andalites. that's the, their blanket rule, the law of serious kindness. Right. So that started, I mean, the, of course that grew out of the thing in the 60s. Exactly. But like, yeah. there are an awful lot of, there's an awful lot of structure around that, considering it's been 30 years. Though, I feel like we're actually missing, like, who who gets morphing technology on the Andalite homeworld? Like, yeah. There's the structure inherent to morphing, like two mm-hmm. hours, like have to acquire the DNA first, can't acquire from a morphed person, can't morph straight from one animal to another. But then we don't actually know much about how it's regulated in Andalite society. But actually. I think Grace's point is it's not regulated yet. It's totally brand new. She's, yeah. she's stole like a prototype. Yeah. She, or she mm-hmm. got the ability to morph from like a prototype Escafil device. Yeah. Because she happened to know the daughter of... The, one of the designers. That's so cool. Like, yeah. so much power to her. Also, I love that she did that. it's such a teen thing. Like, ooh, <laughs> fancy. I will touch this glowing box and see what happens. But I, I was also thinking, actually, about what we learn in the Andalite Chronicles, which is, what, five or six years later? And there yeah. seems to have been enough, within those six years, enough warriors have gotten it that there are traditions around it. About, like, what animal about you acquire? You acquire yeah, this animal yeah. for, and this is how often you morph, and you don't do it for kicks, and, like, yeah, there do but seem super to new, be yeah. some kind of, well, you know, interesting But structures. I think the thing that I took away from it is that we learn a lot about Andalite society and the, like, Andalite patriarchy, and so the Andalite military has been around for a while, and morphing technology is invented by, like, scientists and the men that don't tend to trust scientists who are mostly women, <laughs> right? So there's yeah. there's, like, a lot more nuance now culturally to like maybe why morphing hasn't caught on and why like even though like aldrea herself makes a pretty persuasive case for like oh you know we shouldn't be all doing all this tail fighting all the time you know like we shouldn't care so much about that because we have all this awesome technology but the system is slow to change and it's not that surprising that in the context of a nine thousand year society Mm -hmm. that in 30 years they haven't caught up and yeah. they've also done enough studies by this point in 1968, or their equivalent, where they know that women are women, female Andalites are better at morphing, which is really interesting. Yeah. Which wow. also might, I mean, I'm willing to buy that. Like, I don't think that's no, sexist I guess, on the part of Andalites. No, no, I just, my question was more, when did they figure that <laughs> Well, they didn't invent morphing technology in that year. Like, it might be it's been around for five years or something, and they've done some studies. Yeah. And, but that also might be a reason why it hasn't caught on as much. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah, we can get with into the military. The, yeah, yeah, we can get into the Andalite society stuff more. Yes, we should. So other things we learned from the dates. Mm-hmm. Uh, we learned that an Andalite year is within the neighborhood of human year. Mm-hmm. We learned that the Horkbajir have wonderful ways of keeping track of the seasons. It's adorable. Mm-hmm. Yerks are also relatively new on the scene. Yeah. Right? Generation 685. Um, it's much less... Oh, wow. Uh, 
well, I wonder how long a generation is for them. Looks like two years. Oh, is it? Was it only one? Generation six eighty five mid cycle to generation six eighty six early cycle. So, and we know that Esplen Visser three is an early cycle Yerk, right? So he's born in sixty seven or sixty eight. So his lifespan is up to where it is in the. We don't know how many generations have been created since then. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I don't think we actually have any clues as to as to how that is. So a generation is like, at, you know, it could be up to 30 years, but could be even less than that, depending on how often. Yeah. I was guessing from this that there's some sort of, which would also make sense with how the Yerks reproduce, there's some sort of biological imperative that determines the timing of mm-hmm. when these three Yerk parents unite and then split into many children because they keep track of time based on... I was assuming a generation is like a spawning of Yerks, but like maybe it is like you're born within this generation. I was assuming it was a spawning too. Yeah. yeah. I sort of was as well. But it also means that they're relatively longer lived also if Visser three is oh, yeah. born in 68 and still active in the hierarchy 30, 30 years, years later. later. Yeah. Which I thought was kind of interesting because I might not expect that from given what we know about their biology. Well, especially because they seem to mature very quickly. Yeah. Like, we talked before about, like, do Yerks have a childhood? And we don't really see any of that with Visser 3. Like, we don't get the sense that, like, oh, I was still a child Yerk when I did this stuff. But also, Yerks could live for, like, 60 years, but the generations overlap, right? So you could have a a spawning every 18 months. And so we don't don't really know. But we do know that that at least Yerks live for 30 years without being old at that point. Exactly. Right. And, And I think it must be that... If the Yurks left the Yurk homeworld with a quarter million Yurks, that there are many, many more millions, oh, yeah. if not billions of Yurks later in the war. It's mm-hmm. not like that number has been whittling down until the next spawning event when it will right. go times a thousand or something. Yeah, right? no. So presumably the Yurk population is booming. Yes, yeah. I think that's probably true. Um, and then for, for the Earth dates, this is kind of the height of the Vietnam War. And I think it shows in some aspects of this. Yeah, so we should talk more about Vietnam as a very questionable metaphor for what's happening in this book. Go on. Oh, well, uh, so at the end, the last maybe third of the book, you have four species fighting in an unfamiliar terrain mm-hmm. that is forested. It's not quite a jungle, but <laughs> yeah. let's take that as red. The invading forces or the the sort of so the people who live there the work vizier they live mm-hmm. in these forests that is their sort of natural habitat they are adapted to living and working among the trees slash created for living and working among the trees and we'll talk about that there are the arn the arn yeah. thank you the arn that created the work vizier and who are trying to be very hands-off and, like, not get involved in the war, but who are still essentially supporting its efforts by providing succor and shelter and that kind of thing. Reluctantly, yes, but are still involved. And then you have the other two groups of fighters, the Andalites and the Yerks. And the Yerks are taking over Hork-Bajir kind of one by one until they have hundreds of thousands of them Mm -hmm. under their control. And the Andalites who are fighting a losing battle. And I think one could make a decent argument that in this particular situation, again, the Andalites are sort of standing in for the U.S. Oh, yeah. In a lot of ways. And there are no there are no really good actors. Like, the Yerks and the Andalites and the Arn are all not great. But, yeah. like, the hork are taking the ruthlessness from them and fighting this kind of guerrilla warfare in the jungle. I really hope that that is not 
that Apple Grant did not really think that through because the way the Hork-Bajir are portrayed, especially from an intelligence perspective, that would be hella racist, like just very, very racist in a way that like might have been true in the 1960s, but that's not when these are being written. So I'm hoping that that was just a like, oh, right, guerrilla warfare happens in the 60s and now we're not going to think about it anymore. But I definitely got to that point was like, are those meant to be the Vietnamese? Because I'm going to be real upset with you. I don't you. think it's meant to be like, this is exactly Vietnam. But no. you're right that that's a really problematic parallel. Yeah. Although one of the themes of this book, which we've like referenced a little bit, is that like the perspective that intelligence is the most important thing is deeply flawed, even though the book itself sort of reinforces that perspective. Mm-hmm. This book has a very conflicted relationship with intelligence. Yeah. And so it is interesting that like, Well, I agree with you that it is problematic to cast, to make a direct comparison of like the Vietnamese are the same as these particular aliens. Like the idea that it is insulting because these aliens are not intelligent, the idea that that is an insult is in itself problematic. Even though I agree that like, yes, I see. These are all different species and humans are all the same species, as Cassie pointed out. So it's inherently problematic to portray them. Yes. Good different races yep. of humanity as to these different species anyway. No, it's a good point. And I do think you're right that that was certainly not, it's not designed to be a direct analogy. It's more right. of kind of taking from these like bigger themes of but, guerrilla warfare. Yeah, but I wonder if you have a larger point with the like race blindness that Animorphs wants to have as a series, mm-hmm. like sort of failing to address the issue at all so far. And to, I think at one point the Andalites... X even says, like, oh, well, you're just all humans here. Who do you fight? Right? And it's like, oh, we fight each other. You know, like, and that's like, oh, that's like a stupid humans do that. But uh, at the same time, thematically, all sentient species are people, right? So, like, having people fighting people across different species is, uh, is like, the metaphor is so obvious. And so I wouldn't be surprised if, if they didn't think it through when they were writing it. Well, it's sort of that 90s thing where it's like, well, none of us are racist. Racism is like a thing in the past or a thing that like bad people are. So we can draw this parallel. Like, obviously, we're not being racist with it. Like, that would be crazy. I feel like that's like, there is like colorblindness really is like blindness. Like it's right. Yeah, I think I'm not saying that they should have found a Hork-Bajir sensitivity reader. But (laughs) you know, I feel like they well, obviously, that would not have been feasible. But I do feel like there's a lot of lip service to, like, the Horkbajir are great. The Horkbajir are, like, nonviolent and, like, peaceful and wonderful. And we don't get to know any of them except the one who is a complete aberration, who is, like, way more intelligent than all the others. Like, mm-hmm. there are a few recurring Horkbajir characters. They're, like, really background characters. Mm-hmm. And it's really, like... You know, you were hoping the Andalite Chronicles with Grey would be like a whole history of the Andalites. The Horkature Chronicles are a little bit more like the story of the Horkature people, but it's really still the story of one Horkature. Well, He's the only character. Well, let's, yeah, let's let's talk about the intelligence thing now. Because, like, it's very much the Horkbajir are these kind of, like, noble savages. And I feel like mm-hmm. it's, it's a lot more problematic before you sort of learn that they were bioengineered to be that exact thing, which feels like... It's not really an excuse for, you know, the the narrative simplicity of only dealing, of only relating to the one really smart guy, right? But it's, 
I don't know what to I don't know what to make of it, but it's like, oh yeah, well the Harkbajir, they're kind of like noble savages. Should we lean into that trope? And then they're like, okay, well we'll just explain it away. That like, yes, the Arn were like, okay, well our atmosphere is screwed up, so we need to g- engineer giant trees, and we're too lazy to tend to them ourselves. So we'll just create a whole species of people that can do it for us, and we'll make them super dangerous, but really nice. The end. Yeah, it's definitely, I was thinking about the noble savages thing. It's definitely that. And it's like, there there are so many times in this book that people are called out for not respecting the hork like, not respecting the hork despite their lower intelligence. Like, there's this great moment where Dak has just been blown off by the Andalite warriors, and he's like, we fight alongside you, and you still don't respect us. You know, we fought side by side with your people and you Andalites still fe- treat us like inferiors, like errand runners or servants or like idiot clowns to amuse you. And Aldrea says, they didn't know who you are. And like, that's kind of the point. Like, you know, they figured you were just some regular Horkbajir. And he says, yes, they assumed I was just one of the stupid Horkbajir, the simple-minded Horkbajir, the expendable, irrelevant, foolish Horkbajir. She tries to protest, but like, that is what she meant. Like, mm-hmm. she thinks he's the only one who matters because he's the only one who's smart. And it gets called out so much. And in fact, the next bit that he says is, you Andalites have more respect for the vicious Yerks or cowardly Arn than you have for the hork who fight and die at your sides. All that matters to your people is intelligence. Well, I've learned enough about Yerk and Andalite and Arn intelligence to make me sick, which is just perfect because it's, it's true that throughout the book, the Andalites do have considerably more respect for everyone who isn't a hork Um And in fact, one of the one of the first times that it comes up is during Ciro, when Ciro is fighting with Aleron, I think, mm-hmm. about about whether they should, uh, whether Ciro should have helped the Yerks. And Ciro says, they have no history of harming intelligent life forms. The Geds are barely conscious in their natural state. It's not like they were stealing the bodies of truly sentient creatures. What? <laughs> what is wrong with you? Like, that's just... Again, I think a lot of it is about Andalite arrogance, which yeah. has come up a lot. And But that idea that it doesn't matter because those people are dumb, so it's okay yeah, if they yeah. get taken over. It's like, it's such a bizarre thing to have from these sort of heroic creatures. I don't know if we want to conflate the thing with the Geds and the Horbajir, because I, I do feel like we don't know very much about Ged minds, but it seems like there's nothing to subdue when... Visser three infests the Ged, whereas there is a mind that like cries out against him when he infests the Horkbajir. That gets that gets problematized a little bit because yeah. later he describes the Ged as being like old and broken or broken down and tired oh, or something. No. Tired oh, that's broken. really sad. Okay, yeah. well maybe it's equivalent. We don't know that much about the Geds, right? But but, uh, yeah. but my but point is, that I think it, it is, doesn't. It shouldn't matter. But this is also it's like you could make the you could probably make the argument that from the perspective of of Animorphs as a series that there really is a total continuous spectrum from all living things, like all animals to, you know, up to Andalites and humans and Elemists that, mm-hmm. like, are objectively increasing in intelligence. Like, that seems to be what the world building is yeah. going for. So I actually think that, like, I agree that when you want to make an analogy to talk about real world issues, they're, like, different things. But, like, it's the humans versus animals versus, like, humans versus their perception of other humans are very different in our world. They don't actually seem that different in the this Animorphs universe to me. Yeah, because the intelligence level of animals has been a really, like, important question for the Animorphs. Like, Cassie has this whole concern. Um, they don't morph other humans, but they'll morph, they'll morph animals. Right. And, 
Like, it's like would we ha- do we have a problem with Yerks infesting animals? Like, do we have a, more of a problem if they infest dolphins than if they infest horses? Like, are we trying to free the horses from the Yerk control? Right. Yeah, I think it'd be, it'd be interesting Maybe to think are. about, like, is it is um, Dak less like a really smart human of a different race and more like a really smart cow or maybe a really smart Neanderthal going back to a way different part of human history, right? Like, I feel like Animorphs, the Animorphs series, like, muddies that question. It certainly does seem to claim that Horpager freedom matters, and it seems like there's, like, a line you cross into sentience, and after that, you're a person. Maybe it's a, there's a spectrum of intelligence, but, like, it feels like there's a line somewhere there. And the book is trying to claim that it doesn't matter if Horpajir are lower on the scale of intelligence because they're still sentient and they still matter just as much. But there is this conflict between like content and form where the content is saying that over and over and over again. And it's problematizing this idea that like creatures with lower intelligence matter less. And then it only focuses on the one with higher intelligence. It's like the authors couldn't figure out how to actually write a story about people of lower intelligence. Mm-hmm. And they keep shooting down this idea that intelligence matters, but they don't have anything to put into its place. Mm-hmm. That's really interesting. I want to talk more about that. So I think one of the things that I'm now thinking about is like, uh, we learn a lot about Andalite uh, translation technology in this book, yeah. right? So when Dak approaches Aldre and her family for the first time, he comes up and he's like, I'm Dakami, and his his friend there introduces himself. I forget his name. And then they're talking to her, and it becomes clear to the reader that while uh, the hork can understand thought speech, the Andalites cannot understand the hork because their translator chips haven't heard enough vocabulary to, like, solve the problem for them, right? Mm-hmm. So you have this part of the way the hork are represented as unintelligent is they can barely form sentences in English or in like Gallard or, you know, whatever, whatever their Herpajir language is. And mm-hmm. so it's like written in kind of this dumped down, simple sentence type thing. And the Andalites are given access to this technology that lets them communicate at like mm-hmm. a higher level in this like kind of, in the world of the Animorphs, like, oh, you know, everyone can understand thought speech, but the like uh, native tongues or whatever aren't aren't as universal, and in the mm-hmm. case of the Hork-Bajir, aren't as sophisticated. So, like, mm-hmm. leaning into the metaphor, a lot of the interactions that you see are can be read as, like, between people who speak English and people who don't speak English as a second language, right? Mm-hmm. And so, like, the fact that they don't take the Hork-Bajir language and culture seriously means that, like, of course they can't write something from a Hork-Bajir perspective, right? Mm-hmm. The whole, doing the whole book like that would be very challenging, but I feel like they yeah. kind of wrote themselves into a corner. I don't know. With I the way like, the Harpajir are portrayed. I feel like you could have a Harpajir point of view where, you know, like maybe Dak's friend has a point of view and like he has some like intense emotional thing going on and you get to see his like feelings and what, you know, what does he think about this war with the Yurks? He'll at least have re- responses to it, even if maybe he can't articulate them in a way that like we would think of as sophisticated. Well, right. But I just don't think that they're, for whatever reason, they weren't interested in committing to writing a character with the mind of a four-year-old. Yeah, which really undermines their point, <laughs> I feel. Right. Well, like, what are what are some good examples of literature that does that well? Anything come to mind? Yeah, I have a couple examples. So Room, for example, is by Emma Donahue. They made it into a movie a few years ago, and it's told from the perspective of a five- or six-year-old. Mm-hmm. And so it's very simple. He's in, it, He is the only narrator. 
Um, so the actual text is is him being like, you know, that's the glowy window thing. Mm-hmm. Um, One of the points of view in Naomi Novik's Spinning Silver mm-hmm. is, I think, not that young, but um, a very, very childish voice. Yeah. So I think there are a few, and yeah. it's possible, but I was it would certainly be the first part of the Sound of the Fury. Yeah, another perfect like, example. The Benji chapters in or part of the Sound of the Fury, mm-hmm. which I think is hard to read. I mean, it's Faulkner, but it's also like it's intentionally tough. The perspective of a character with reduced mental capacity. So but that would also be so interesting to see. Well, I totally agree. Yeah. I totally agree. I guess yeah. what I'm saying is, it feels like a limit to the whole ideas, like the ideas behind painting the Andalites is like the Americans is like, it is pretty racist to be like, there's one true universal language and the Andalites <laughs> speak it and people who can't speak it well enough are more primitive. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah. Cause that, that like metaphor is totally there, even though like, mm-hmm. sure you can, you could justify it with some of the, the sci-fi stuff. Right. In this um, case, it is actually true that their language is more universal, but right. Exactly. Yeah. So it's the same thing you were saying, like yeah. the facts actually the facts of the universe actually suggest there is a strict hierarchy of intelligence and like more sentient intelligent people are better, mm-hmm. like based on what is going, like all the different stuff that happens in these books. I guess the moral perspective they have is like not that, but at least the way they lay out, like. Yeah, I mean, I don't know that that's exactly what I meant to say. I do feel like there is a thing where like once you cross some line into sentience, all of a sudden everyone is equally valid. Like that is the argument that the books are trying to make but they also like cassie gets super upset about the termite queen like there is also this thread of like you know intelligence does not determine worth sentience doesn't even determine worth even if sentience does have some impact on it like they're not being portrayed as like horrible killers for killing termite Mm -hmm. but like aside from like the hork being like literal noble savages or whatever even so i think this is kind of what you were saying about um ciro and the yurks Ciro does the same thing to the hork when he arrives, too, right? So Aldrea and, and Dak become friends, but we get a lot from her about how she keeps being like, hey, actually, Dak's, like, really smart. And her dad's he's like, He's better no. than me at calculus. And, like, Ciro's mm-hmm. like, that's literally impossible. You're just a dumb <laughs> teenage girl. Yeah. And he's sort, of, he's sort of like, yeah, you know, well, they don't have any, like, technology and stuff, so they're not that interesting. You know, they don't have any art or music or culture. And we find out that's all wrong, right? Yeah. It's just that they haven't. Their prejudices have blinded them to the possibilities of the Horkbajir culture overall, right? So, like, that is a very clear and explicit theme, despite the fact that if you think about it a little harder, mm-hmm. it kind of falls apart. Yeah, there's an amazing line that her father has where she's like, I don't know if I should, like, keep taking notes. This feels like spying. And he's like, Dak wouldn't even understand what spying is, as if that's, like... That therefore you can spy on him. Yeah. Like he doesn't have an intellectual conception of it, so it And like when happen. Aloran shows up, one of his guards is like, Oh, you can leave your pet here. Ooh. Mm-hmm. Your mother has studied the intellectual capacity of Hork Bajir. I assure you, they are not capable of reading, not more than recognizing one or two words, and certainly no math beyond what they need to keep track of family members. Well <laughs> that's inaccurate. Also, you're meant to be there as observers and you're not observing, and also bite me. <laughs> oh man yeah but i mean I, I i love the book because it makes those themes really apparent it, i feel like it is trying to grapple with them even mm-hmm. if it ultimately falls on its face uh a lot of the times yeah but functionally think, it fails to grapple i think with them, i think but... the the point that you make about the form versus the content is really important mm-hmm. but i also think that 
the, I, I just feel like it's good enough for middle grade. Maybe that's not true, but similarly... <laughs> I don't think that is true. I mean, I think yeah. it is good that it expresses these ideas. I think in middle grade, like, it's just as important as in everything else to not have your form completely contradict the thing you're trying to say. Because it's not mm-hmm. like kids won't kids won't instinctively be like, oh, the intelligent one. That's whose story we get. That's the important one. Because that's what they want to say anyway. And I guess that's what you're saying about, like, yeah. the romance stuff. You were sort of obliged to the the crappier aspects of it reading it the first time is that what i'm saying about that sorry i missed the connection you were saying that you associate you were like you read this and were like oh this is a romantic one and then you came back to me you're like what was i thinking right so that maybe so like i'm kind of saying like maybe you read this and you come away thinking different things certainly some of the nuance was lost was lost on me when i read it the first time but i really remember being mostly angry about the lack of empathy that the various characters were having for everybody involved and less so thinking that being smart is the most important thing. So maybe it's just my experience. And some people came away being like, wow, I agree with Andrea. Only (laughs) intelligent people are attractive. I don't think anyone comes away thinking like, I have now acquired this idea that only intelligent people are attractive or important. I think it's more that like, there's a level where we like, learn stuff and then can talk about it and there's a level where we like learn stuff and it deeply affects like the way we view the world the way we tell stories Uh and there are a lot of great ideas in here about intelligence not being the most important but it's not hitting that deeper level of like actually changing the way you see the world but do you think the form is like insidious or do you think it's just a failure i think it's just a failure yeah i would have liked to read a book where they like really challenged themselves and like figured out what they were trying to say about intelligence before they wrote any of it and and were like wait we should restructure this so we actually prioritize some characters of lower intelligence yeah i can't argue with that maybe they would have made it harder like i mean if dak hadn't been as intelligent i feel like there would have been a power dynamic that would have made the romance even more problematic right well, I think, I mean, I think the whole thing with the Arn, it's total plot device. It's just like, let's have it, there be more wacky sci-fi. It's, mm-hmm. There's a cool hidden underground civilization. We need an explanation for how the work Bajir evolved. Let's just say they didn't evolve and were created. Great. We've, we solved that. Don't have to justify <laughs> it. You know, we, we set up all this world building in like book 13 or whatever. And now we've just explained it all away. <laughs> and oh, Andrea needs to be able to, like, we need this, like, plot thing. And so, oh, are they going to create a Horkbajir army? No, let's have monsters. Monsters are cool. We have to explain this monster that Mr. Three morphed and, like, got to connect all these dots. I don't know. I think it's cool how that connects some of the stuff. Like, no, I don't I'm, think I'm they saying, even... I feel like that's where it came from. I, I don't think that they stepped back and said, like, oh, if we introduce the super intelligent Arn as creators of the Horkbajir, this will problematize our themes. I think they were more like... I don't know if it does. Oh, yeah, another, you know, you know, they've created something and then they're looking down on it. Isn't that Yeah, bad? I feel like they were trying to reinforce their theme of, like, the Horkbadir are ends unto themselves. They are valid, and yet people keep trying to use them. Yeah, there's... Dax says that explicitly. Yeah. He says, we had been created by one brilliant species, invaded and enslaved by another, and now a third was using us. Yeah. I just feel bad for the Horkbadir. I mean, uh, yeah. yeah, you can't read this and not feel bad for the Horkbadir. Oh, my Bajir. gosh. Who's on the who's on Esplin's side? Who's on Alloran's side? Esplin was the most boring character. Okay, should we just have a should we have an Esplin <laughs> chat? Okay, here's the thing about Esplin. Esplin is meant to be Visser Three. In theory. Oh my <laughs> I don't We had such I'm so excited to get into this. I want to hear Grace's reaction. The thing is, I don't buy it, and here is why. 
One, Esplin is not a sympathetic character, but we get backstory. We get more backstory on Esplin than we do on any of the Horpagier, kind of including Dad. <laughs> and and it's like he's a young Yerk, and he just wants to like get into a body because he's so excited about sight and being able to like be have hands and stuff and he just really wants that again so he goes okay how can i get a body i have to become useful because if you're useful you get put to the front of the queue there aren't enough bodies for all the yerks i really want one i know what i'm gonna do i'm gonna learn all about the andalites because that will make me useful going forward as we fight against the andalites fine i don't think we see any of their characterization of this or three later on. But then there's this whole minor conflict between this or three and another Yerk named Carger. Carger, maybe? Carger 7901. Yep, who I'm pretty sure is this or one. No. What? Good theory. That is my theory. What? That is my theory. And my theory is that because they are. Warm. I don't remember anything about the series. <laughs> Carger 7901. They've known each other for a long time. They do not like each other. And Visser 3 says, There's all, there had always been something too crude, too violent about him, too ambitious. And they both become Hork-Bajir controllers at the same time. Karger is unable to control himself in, in order, like, to in the combat situation. He kind of just goes for it. And Visser 3 is being much more cautious. And I feel like that is backwards. I feel like this should be Visser 1, Who's like, I'm thinking about how I'm going to like do this stuff. And Visser 3 is like, or maybe I'll just shoot them all real fast. I don't know. It just like, it seemed like such a weird characterization for what we know about Visser 3 later on. It didn't feel at all like Visser 3 to me. It didn't. I feel like he's not the one who's like, I know, I'll study a bunch and that will help me advance. Because yeah. first of all, that's a good strategy and Visser 3 doesn't have those. No. Second of all, like, I can't imagine him like devoting himself to careful study. He's such a blowhard. He is definitely a Carver. That's like, what I'm saying. He, I can't believe he described someone else as too crude and violent. I can see him calling someone else too amb- ambitious because ambitious people don't like other ambitious people because, you know, sure they want to have all the glory. And you do see ambition here, but, like, this or three is completely crude and violent. He's a completely paranoid. You don't see any of that. Mm-hmm. You don't see him, like... I felt like it, a lot of his narration was very colorless, and Fisher 3 is anything but colorless as a character. Yeah. He's also very thoughtful, and, like, he yeah. has he has strategy. He's kind of thinking ahead. Not true of Fisher No, Fisher 3 just morphs the biggest monster he can find. And tries to eat him. Yeah. I figure he got his post as Sub-Visser 7 by, like, I don't know, killing a bunch of people, like, just, like, taking over their position. Like, he's not the, like... Thoughtful, I'm going to study everything, and then I'll know all the strategies, and, like, no one listens to my, like, actual coherent knowledge about the Andalites, because they resent right. that I'm Wait learned. to shoot That's until so I not see him. all... Wait until you see all four Andalites. When you see all four Andalites, then you can attack, but not until that you see so all four That is so not him. Very good, Visser 3. What happened to all of that strategy later on when you're on Earth? And Did he just, like, get window? addicted to drugs or something? Totally. All right. Oh, yeah. What oh, do we see... <laughs> What do we see of Visser 3 in Andalite Chronicles? He still is, he feels like the same character there, right? Maybe. But yeah. his plan to infest Alrin is pretty good, right? He, he executes that plan working with Chapman successfully. Yes. Right? He and Elfangor have this weird dynamic where it's like true hate at first sight, mm-hmm. right? But do we see, do we feel like the Esplan in Andalite Chronicles is as colorful and... Foolish as Visser 3? 
Hmm, maybe not. I mean, well, he has that whole thing with, like, I feel like when they're in the tripartite pocket universe, the uh, one the Time Matrix created, he does a lot of, like, dramatic, you know, speechifying, yeah. threatening, like, here are my pets, the Jareks and Larricks, who I just, aren't they wonderfully vicious? Like, right. I think there's more of him there. Because I agree that it does not feel like Visser 3. Mm-hmm. However, I am, I guess I feel like I'm a lot more on board for taking this as who Esplin was and then like trying to see the evolution mm-hmm. of a person just because that's what like is presented. So maybe I'm like giving it too much credit and maybe it would have been more fun to have Visser 3 be born that way. But mm-hmm. like, the, so I guess the main things that jump out to me about Esplin is the introduction is like something clarified for me reading it this time that I had never understood before because you get. In the on, on the first page, he says, I was born from the decaying bodies of my tripartite parents, along with several hundred brothers and sisters aboard ship. I have never lived on the homeworld. I was born in a sterile titanium alloy tank beneath the warmth of a portable Kendrono. And so he Visser Three is a child soldier who is a product <laughs> of the the early burgeoning Yurk Empire. Right? That's true. He's like he talks about other Yurks like mentioned all of this culture and stuff in the home pools and like other Yurks are really sickened by their training time when they have to investigate for the first time. And so Visser three definitely has that like will to power thing where he's yeah. like, ha ha ha. I like, I'm, I'm getting off on it and it's great. And he has the same kind of thing that after has where like sight is the best thing that's ever happened to him. And he's mm-hmm. addicted to it and wants it to be better and better and better. Right. But he is also kind of created by this circumstance of like whatever went down on the Yurk home world where, What's the guy's name? Actor, one of the Yurks who was behind That just there. sounds like the word actor when you say it out loud. Wow. Didn't realize. Yeah. A- actor was the one who first decided that hosts could be used for predation and had personally killed Andalites escaping from the Yurk homeworld, right? Mm-hmm. So there's, there's some kind of like the Yurk empire was created by a group of Yurks going rogue or with cooperation from the Council of Thirteen. We don't know, but like... They leave the Yurk homeworld and then they make it to the Horkbajir homeworld and create the Yurk Empire. Mm-hmm. And whatever was going on with Yurk society and culture has been left behind and like blockaded by Andalites. And so I feel like there's this big open question of like how much of the Yurks that we know and love to hate are what Yurks are like and how much is it what this group of Yurks led by Akdor yeah. that Visser Three was born into are like. And so it's, it's this really interesting open question in the world building. And like just the fact that we get, I think Visitor 3 still comes off as enough of a creep in this book, especially He's like the way he thinks great. about Aldrea and like some of the, obviously all of the like stuff about uh, controlling his hosts and thinking down to them. But like, it's just so interesting to see him as a product of his environment yeah. in a way that say David was not. <laughs> Although it's not like every Yurk in that Yurk pool went on to become Visser Three. Like there were hundreds of thousands that were taken from the Yurk homeworld and then. Oh yeah, more yeah, more. yeah, yeah. Oh, definitely not. So I mean, I feel like Visser Three is a product of his environment about as much as David is. David would never have gone on to do the things he had did if he hadn't, you know, lost his family and then gotten the morphing power. Visser Three, I feel like, wouldn't have been great. No like, when he was born. David's not a great example, but like Chapman. Chapman's just kind of, like, evil for no reason, and we, we never get an explanation as to why he's, like, a crappy yeah. team. But, yeah, I feel like the stuff, like, there's definitely signs that Fizzer 3 is not a great person. He just doesn't seem to have any, like, personality. Right. Like, he's just, it's just such a bland voice. His personality is a nerd. He's yeah. into, into Andalites. Fizzer 3 is yeah. not a nerd. I refuse. 
One thing um, about the other Yerks and sort of that environment that I found really interesting was, um, so he's talking about how he's never lived on the home world. He was born in this tank, whatever. And uh, he says, older Yerks spoke of the pools of home, of their smells and temperatures, their size and spaciousness, of their traditions that stretched back for hundreds of generations. Mm. And I liked that little bit of backstory on the Yerks that they they did not have, you know, sight, but their sonar allowed them to appreciate these beautiful, spacious pools and all of their brothers and sisters nearby. Mm-hmm. And that having a few bad actors <laughs> um, who forced them off world maybe wasn't what all of them wanted. Yeah. Right. And he has this kind of like self-loathing about being like a slug in a tiny titanium pool. Which fair enough. Yeah. And we see in Visser 3 sort of the another major theme of this book when he, he's been in the host and then he's back in the pool. He says, I was left to wander blind around the home that had once been my entire universe and was now a filthy trap, which is a very colorful way of talking about this whole, the section I called in my notes, Flowers for Algernon, which is this thing where like, again and again, this book tells us that like, you introduce people to like, a new thing, new realms of thinking, like new perspectives on the universe, and they're not ever willing to go back to their original lives, which mm-hmm. I would love to hear what you guys think about that, because it doesn't seem like that gets undermined. It seems like they're saying, no, that's a thing. I don't know. What do you guys think? I think that's right. I mean, there's a lot in here about how great it is to have a body, limbs, and the ability to try out a new form, whether that's morphing it or... Uh, investing in. But or it's being a seer. Yeah, it's not just that. Like, Dak has this whole thing where... I mean, I think it is a... I think that it is a real thing that people yeah. experience. Yeah. Like, I think that's a pretty relatable thing. But I think what you're getting at is it's kind of a problematic viewpoint. And, like, maybe if you... Usually, if you have that kind of, like, oh, I can never... I'm looking down on my past and the people who I grew up with. Yeah. Hopefully you mature a little and realize why that's a narrow-minded way to see them. Yeah. Yeah. So Dak goes through the same thing where he was, seems like he was content before. And and this is Aldrea thinking about him, wondering, like, is he going to leave her? And she says, no, it was too late for Dak. He knew that the stars were not flowers. And having learned so much, he still needed to learn more. He was hungry for it, for ideas, for knowledge, for skills. And only I could feed that hunger. And it's this sort of idea of like innocence lost, which is mirrored in the way the Harpajir react to violence, which I found very implausible and would love to talk about. Hmm. They so the Harpajir are not violent at all. Like Dax sees one of the Harpajir controllers before he knows what it is attack. I get. I think it attacks him, and he's like, "What? A Harpajir injured me like with his blade? Like that's." That's not a thing. Like, they have no clue. He's so shocked when Aldrea fights back against a monster of the deep. Like, they've never even thought to do that. And that's sort of explained when you learn that the Arn developed them to be these, like, tree shepherds. And, like, seems like specifically genetically engineered them to not be violent. And then as soon as Dak shows them violence, um, so Aldrea's, like, leading him to do this and is, like, do as he does, like do as your seer does. And they all follow him and start attacking the Yerks. And then all of a sudden they just are very violent and don't don't seem to have any emotional reaction to it, don't have any problem doing it, don't seem to have any difficulty fighting. But like, there's this one line, like his friend, I forget his name, had like learned so much in 20 minutes of 
of battle. Like, he now was, like, thrilled to be stomping on Yurks. Like, he completely changed into this savage creature. And, like, the Harkvajir were reluctant to pull away from the fight. There's this idea that, like, they weren't violent, not because it wasn't in their natures, but because they were, like, innocent of it. And then once someone showed them violence, they're like, oh, this thing, great. Now now that I know what this is, I can't turn back and be innocent or peaceful again. And we've seen that before, too, with, like, do we want to be the people who, like, let the chi kill? The chi have never killed, and we're going to be the ones to break that. This idea that, like, peacefulness is, like, a delicate thing, and if you shatter it, there's no putting it back together again. And there's the same kind of idea with, like, happiness with your limited life. If you are exposed to more things... Your life is shattered and you can't put that old life back together again. That's really interesting. So the, I mean, it's interesting that I think it is kind of like a plot hole or like it's, it's pretty hand wavy that the Harkbajir all immediately turn on a dime. Yeah. Um, but like Dak sees it that way, the way you mm-hmm. just described. Because Aldrea, when they're, when the Yurks are here and she explains what's going to happen to Dak, he's like, well, we've already lost. My people are lost. They're going to be destroyed either way because we have to become slaves or become killers. And both of those things are bad, right? Mm-hmm. So so he's pretty explicitly saying, like, he instinctively knows that the innocence of his people is a thing to be preserved, yeah. right? So yeah. I guess it's pretty easy to read that in the author's voice, but it's also like yeah. a specific view that Dak has or has internalized from Eldrea. I mean, it definitely seems to be what this this book's perspective on violence and also on knowledge. It's very like Garden of Eden, don't eat the apple. Right. But so I, I want to talk about that moment when Aldrea explains what stars are to him, because we get that moment from Dak's point of view. And I really liked the way it was written, where she sort of explains like the, the stars to the work are like the flowers of mother sky or something. And she explains like, actually those, those are stars like your son, but they're really far away. And then he has this moment of, epiphany where he's like oh yeah things that are far away are smaller so the thing that she's saying it could be true and then he's like oh my god this is like totally brought into my horizons Mm -hmm. what a fascinating new way to see the world i can never look back right so i think that that is i guess maybe a more positive way to spin the same kind of theme which is the like now that i know stars exist I can't relate to my family and my people because they're yeah, too dumb to know yeah. that, right? So I think those are, like, different, and maybe the book doesn't do a good job of separating them out. Yeah, I mean, I really liked that passage where, like, suddenly he was putting things together and sort of knowing the pleasure of intellectual activity for the first time right. because he'd never had anyone to relate to about that before. Like, there had been no one to stimulate him in that way. And it is, like, I think you're right. Like, it's not like it's not a human experience to, like, explore new things and then not be content with what you had before. But I think this perspective of like innocence as a thing that must be protected or or the pieces of it are going to be worthless and like unable to be preserved is like I don't know. I don't really agree with that view of I mean human nature. These are, you know, people nature, I guess. I don't know. It's really interesting because I I don't know if I feel as strongly that that's the point of view of this book or the series as a whole. Yeah. I'm trying to think back, like, when Jake's mom is talking to him about how being a teenager is terrible. There's a little bit of that, like, oh, well, you grow up and you just learn how to deal with your problems better. Yeah. Right? So I'm wondering if that, like, I'm wondering if the authors would disagree with you about uh-huh. that sentiment or not. Yeah. Right? Which is, I, I don't know, maybe not, maybe besides the point of it all. Well, the Animorphs, like, the main books seem to show a lot of, like, the like slow grind of the war. And I think they do that really, really well of like 
we do these things so many times and they really have like it's wear and tear on us and like we have to make these horrible choices like over and over again and after a while it's harder to recover and it's like harder to find the self that you want to be and i feel like it this is like a weirdly simplified version of that yeah but like i feel like cassie is the animorph who thinks innocence can be lost Mm -hmm. whereas not all of them care so much Right, they have a diversity of perspectives on that issue. Like we talked about, we just talked about in twenty two that they're protecting, they're protecting Cassie's innocence almost as much as they're protecting all of their innocence by not killing David. Right. Yeah. yeah, I mean, I think Cassie feels the impact of those actions the most. And and you're right that maybe in the series there is the, this line where like if we kill kill someone in cold blood, we can't come back from it in a way that's like doing that one thing once is like. It doesn't matter how many times you do it after that. Just having done it once is as awful as, as doing it a hundred times. Like, right. No, but I think you're right. Like, cause like the Pemelites are the, oh, they've never, they'd never heard a fly and they're somehow, yeah. they're portrayed as like morally superior. Mm-hmm. Right. So I'm trying to reconcile that. Like, how much is it? Well, and, and Eric is a great example of the loss of innocence, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, for him, it's, it is actually turning on that switch. But then he is actually able to go back. I mean, he can't lose the memories, but he's like, no, I reject this way of life. Yes, but I think he can't go back. I, I think the ignorance is part of that. Yeah. It is, I think the ignorance is part of his innocence. And that once he has lost the ignorance of battle, he has also lost his innocence, regardless of what his choices yeah. are. I don't know how much it is saying that, like, nonviolence is an idea. Like, is it... Nonviolence is a thing that that is the ideal that can that can never be achieved. You can never go back to. Mm. And how much is the series saying that whole idea is really naive? Because <laughs> I feel like it presents both sides of it. Like in this book, Aldrea is like when she realizes what's happening, she's like, "Yeah, I mean, Dak's going to come around to my point of view eventually because <laughs> the Yorks are going to win. So he better start fighting. Better to be a killer than a slave. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. And I feel like." The, the animals kind of ha- are in conversation about that constantly. Yeah, I find the like the main series books to be really thoughtful about that. And I think that's what is a little frustrating to me about this one. Just that I feel like it's presenting a very unnuanced view of the hork relationship with violence. It's like, we are completely 100,000% peaceful. Oh, now we just love stopping, stomping yerks. Like after, you know, 20 minutes of battle, we are completely different. Now we love killing. And it was just like, I don't know, it really lacked the subtlety that like so much of the moral conversation in this series has. Right. But that's interesting because it relates to the intelligence of the hork in an interesting way. Because mm-hmm. I think it's, I kind of read the way that Dak and Aldrea are horrified by what the hork are doing because they understand it mm-hmm. in a way that it seems kind of like just a game to the hork that are participating in it. That's Again, the fact that we don't that... have the we don't have any interiority from the other the other yeah. Harpagir, so we can't know that for sure. Yeah, right. So the book isn't successful there, but yeah, it's, it's almost like Dak is the only one who feels this loss for his people. Right? Yes, yeah, that's true. Um, and that's interesting. This idea that like they can't grasp morality because of their lower intelligence, like which is making me think of something I said about Cassie in episode nineteen, where like her morality is not based in intellect. Like, she's not, she's very smart, and she thinks about her morality, but, like, she has these gut convictions that she doesn't understand yet and has to, like, think for a while before she does understand, but they're already there. And I feel like it's surprising to me that the Horkbajir aren't portrayed as having any of that. Yeah, and you're right, because, like, Jeremy is 
a much more nuanced character than any Horkajir besides Dak in yeah. this book. Right? Yeah. So that's that's just a pretty big failure on the yeah. part of the writing here. Yeah, that's something I found really frustrating about this book. There aren't really any characters besides the three narrators. Yeah. Right? <laughs> and I'm I'm willing Everyone to argue else. that Esplan is not much of a character. Everyone yeah, he doesn't yeah, but like Ciro and Alrin, I guess, get secondary status. I mean, I love Alrin as a character. I want to talk about him more later. <laughs> but even like I noticed that Aldrea's mother does not even get a name. Um, oh my gosh, you're right. <laughs> Gray is like having a fit over here. We'll talk yeah. about the sexism. I was so mad about that. But yeah, there aren't really a lot of characters. It's mostly Aldrea and Dak. Right. Do we want to talk about the sexism or do we want to talk about Aldrea and Dak's relationship? Because I think both would be interesting. Let's start by talking about the Andalite patriarchy. Because Aldrea is a total response to that. Yeah. So can I just say, I was so annoyed to see not exactly human gender norms, but like a patriarchy, a like warrior culture where only men are warriors. It felt like, you know, it's great that women can be in the sciences in the Andalite society, but like, it's like you had so many options for what to do with your alien species and you decided to recreate these aspects of human gender norms. And I understand that sometimes you, you know, you want to like use another culture to expose the way that humans are problematic, or you want to like, you know, you want to explore these ideas, but like, Sometimes you don't want to get the impression that the way in which you are oppressed is a universal thing, not human specific, not even like a specific human society specific. But in fact, every species is like this. This is just the way it is. Women aren't the warriors. Men are the warriors. Men are in charge. Women are told what they can do. And it's not these things. It's these other things. Sometimes you just don't want to have to like There's the part where, like, I personally did not want to have to encounter that in another culture. And there's the part where, like, when you give it to another species, it starts to feel like it's a thing of the universe. Yeah. It feels like a universal instead of an aberration, which it should be. Yeah. I just, I was so appalled by all of the the patriarchy in in their society from the third sentence of Altrea's introduction to herself. Which starts, you see, I'm not like most females. Uh-huh. Like, throw my phone across the room, <laughs> take a break, go for a walk. I'll come back to this later. Just infuriating. And it's the thing, I mean, it is, of course, not like other girls. It's basically that in only slightly altered words. So is it, I guess I want to hear your reaction to this versus Rachel. <laughs> But I, we've t- and we've talked about this before. One of the things that I find most delightful about Rachel as a character is that she has never said that, and she is never going to say that because what Rachel likes is pretty things. She yeah. does. She likes shopping. She likes makeup. She has a change of clothes in Cassie's barn, and that does not make her less of a warrior, and it does not impact her personality at all, that she can be both of those things. Like, she's a surprisingly nuanced character for a middle grade book. She's not just a warrior. She's not just a girly girl. She gets to be both. And that is incredibly unusual in all of writing ever. And it's something that I love about her. Mm-hmm. She she can just kick complete butt and also change it as soon as she gets to Cassie's barn because she doesn't look good in her morning outfit. Like, yeah. That's fabulous. And for this character to have an unnamed mother who's killed off before we, like, learn more about her except that she likes trees, and then to have this whole thing about, like, 
I want to be a warrior, but females aren't born to be warriors, but that's okay because we don't, we shouldn't need to have big tail blades in order to do that. Like she, she has this whole thing about it. And then, you know, this isn't explicit like that first part is, but she is written with a lack of femininity that this character could be, could be anyone, right? It, she doesn't have to be a female from the, from the way that she's written. There's no real sense of her as a girl. There's like a throwaway line about like, I'm of the age where I guess I could be into boys, but I have too much to do right now. And there's the sort of romance. What would it mean to write her as a girl? I mean, I think there, there's, there, it doesn't come up again is what I'm trying to say. Like there's this first bit about, I'm not like most females. I want to be a warrior. But the only other times it comes up are like Alaran arrives and he's like, oh, I didn't take you seriously because you're a girl. End of story. I'm not sure I agree that, like, she should have been written with more, like, consciousness of her femininity. I don't know. I feel like femininity can mean lots of different things. Sure. And, I mean, my experience of being a teenager wasn't like, I am a girl teenager. It was like, I thought of myself as, like, a human. And it wasn't until, like, a decade later that I was, well, maybe less than a decade, but I was like oh, there are a lot of ways in which the patriarchy has impacted me and like, wow, I'm limited in my thinking about myself because of my femininity, all of this stuff. Mm-hmm. Like, I don't know. I don't know what you mean by, by like, she could be written more as a girl. Like, it's, I don't, I don't know what That's, that means. I'm not, I'm not suggesting that she should have been. Mm-hmm. I'm suggesting that for someone whose introduction is about fighting against the patriarchy, mm-hmm. that sure doesn't come up a bunch. Ah, interesting. And it, I mean, it, it comes up kind of a little bit, but... Huh. It, it's introduced as her main driving force that she wishes to be a warrior. And then she gets that opportunity. And, you know, maybe now that I'm saying this out loud, sort of maybe the point is, hey, you always wanted to be a warrior. Here's your chance. Actually, it sucks. <laughs> but that's like not really what we get from her. That's yeah. very much what we get from Dak. But it's not really what we get from her, right? I mean, she she's seeking revenge. She kind of goes headlong into this warrior mentality. And there's a little bit of nuance in terms of her reaction to the violence that she sees around her. But mm-hmm. it's certainly not, I mean, part of it is there's not time for this. But there's, there's not a lot of self-reflection, as there is even for Rachel, mm-hmm. of what that means to be in a violent situation, what the reaction is. true. We don't really see be. her reactions to violence. Yeah. We don't. And I just... I was intrigued by that discrepancy between her introduction and where the character goes. Hmm. Because I actually don't think she has much of a character arc. Yeah, she her character arc is sort of, she's willing to use Dak, and then she ends up sort of choosing his people's side. But it was very much a, like, she has all of these problems where she's like, I'm going to manipulate him into into like helping me. I'm going to use his people to try to, you know, turn back the Yerks. And, oh, I just found out my people are planning to commit genocide against all of them. All right, I'll switch. Mm-hmm. And even like a day before when she was like, if it comes down between my people and you, I'll pick yours. And later she admits she was lying. But then once she finds out genocide, that's like the switch is flipped. And like, that's, yeah, I didn't feel like there was much, there was a lot of, gradation along that arc mm-hmm. i think it's really interesting going back to what you were saying about the like world building i think it's interesting that like they didn't because she aldre just kind of exists in her relationship with dak and a little bit with her family and like nothing else she's just mm-hmm. kind of like a window in the end society it does feel really lazy to just say like 
oh, hey, we'll just borrow Earth, Earth society and its <laughs> flaws, and then yeah. you can kind of, like, get into Aldrea's head quicker, and you don't have to kind of get any more nuance than that. I agree. It just, like, why, why even have that in there? Yeah, I mean, I guess it's part of, like, trying to portray Andalite society as, like, they think they're so great, but actually they're really problematic, and one of the ways is that they're really sexist. And I don't know, it's just, like, you get creative in your portrayals in alien society. And we've seen this before, like, they're very, they think of a lot of interesting things with regard to aliens, and gender is really never part of it. Does Elfinkor ever compare Lauren and Chapman because of their gender? You know, I don't think he does. Because it definitely feels like they invented the Andalite patriarchy for this book. <laughs> and I don't know if, like, well, how we... much was it like, oh, we haven't had a female Andalite yet. Yikes, let's correct that. <laughs> oh, let's give them a patriarchy to explain it. Like, Maybe. Because, like, yeah, they already had Which, again, an if that's society. how you're walking backwards into that decision, maybe rethink <laughs> it. But, um, well, at that point, I mean, I guess it's better to explain it with patriarchy than to just be like, we forgot. oops. <laughs> We forgot that female <laughs> Andalites could exist, and we didn't write any of them. Our bad. Yeah, I don't know. I guess I yeah I I like Aldrea's character compared to Elfingor and Axe mm-hmm. because she feels like a really ruthless Andalite yeah. in the way that we've seen a lot of we've seen that reputation and like uh-huh. it's pretty well earned and like you know <laughs> Dak describes her as like unemotional and she's generally pretty like. Even though she likes him, she's very condescending the whole time. Yeah, and um, very manipulative and very, like, conscious in, like, well, it didn't matter. All that mattered was that I get revenge on the Yerks for killing my family. But I, I just, I appreciated that she was a sort of unlikable protagonist. <laughs> yeah. I Just going back to the not like other girls thing, I yeah. did just want to call out the thing that we talked about, um, I think probably in book seven, when Rachel did have that problematic line about, like, as good as any boy, cool. Which is this idea of, like, sort of a simplified or slightly regressive form of feminism where like the important thing is that girls be allowed to do boy things because the implied like thing there is that like boy things like being a warrior are inherently better and if you're a girl who wants to do boy things they should let you do it and it's unfair if you can't do it but like those are the things that make you like a valuable like strong character she's very strong female character although Mm -hmm. I also really appreciated, like Ted said, I really appreciated that she was actually super problematic and they didn't try to disguise that. Like, Yeah, and I guess this is maybe just like me bringing, I don't know, I'm, maybe I'm just importing feminism into Andalite culture also. But like <laughs> the ways that she's like, yeah, in our warrior, our like all bro-y warrior society is like real stupid. I feel <laughs> like that is not just like I want to be boys, but also like the whole warrior society is really dumb. Like, maybe she yeah, doesn't put yeah. it in the context of Andalite feminism, but I felt like there was enough <laughs> Do Andalites there. even have feminism? It's unclear. Well, right. But, like, I felt like there was enough there to be like, oh, this kind of explains... I think I was kind of saying this before. The fact that um, we had talked before about how Andalites are really into their bodies and see their bodies as, like, yeah, this pure kind yep. of thing. And now we kind of get that it's not just, like, a pure Andalite body, but it's a pure masculine Andalite body, too. Yeah, and so yeah. the, like patriarchy as an explanation for why the Andalites haven't made more rational use of the morphing technology is like to me an interesting choice like Mm -hmm. and I feel like it's presented as I don't know the fact that they offer that as an explanation is interesting but uh, it probably doesn't measure up to the the overall laziness of just trying to set up it's like it's like us but scorpions (laughs) 
so I'm looking at my section about the romance between Jack and Andrea. <laughs> oh, but, let's do it. No, but I want to I want to call out something more more sexism in the writing here. As part of their burgeoning romance, uh, this is Andrea is is uh, has just realized that either that the Yorks are here or the Yorks are going to blow up her family or whatever. But suddenly, I felt Andrea's hand grab my arm above the wrist blade. It was not the first time she had touched me. Usually, I enjoyed the fact that she would grab me for balance, or playfully slap me and pretend it upset, or take my hand as we watched the sun turn red. But this was different. And it's like, oh yeah, because like, girls are always falling over and slapping guys for fun. <laughs> yeah. Nothing like a little bit of playful violence. <laughs> well, Andalite arms are very weak, so uh, there probably was not much violence involved. Andalite in arms are also very sexual. <laughs> We we learn how how do Andalites kiss Ted? They rub their hands on each other's faces. It's true. Adorable. <laughs> now imagine all the times that the Animorphs are touching Axe on various parts of his body. Do they ever touch his face? Do they touch his body really? You don't think that Marco ever throws his arm around Axe to be like, "Hey, I don't Andalite think it's buddy. been called out." No, but they totally do. <laughs> do we want to talk more about this relationship then? Yeah. What are your thoughts on it, Gray? It just, everything about it was a little tiny bit messed up. I feel like maybe intentionally really messed up. I'm not going to give them that much credit. (laughs) Really? You don't think? I mean, it seemed to me this time reading it that it was like, wow, both these characters, like, well, mostly Aldrea is like super problematic and it's weird that Dak is okay with that. And like the extreme trauma that she goes through like she was already kind of condescending but you don't really see you know the problems that like existed in their relationship before the yurks came were like she was getting him to keep secrets for her and like like here's here's what a secret means just trust me trust me i'm gonna say trust me a few more times but then after she goes through this experience of seeing her entire family wiped out from space like that like has such a deep effect on her and really like just ups the level to which like the relationship is screwed up just so much. And so I feel like there was very much a like war screws up relationships kind of thing going on here. Oh yeah. I think that's definitely yeah. there. I love, so you mentioned this moment before, but when, so like Dak thinks fondly of Aldrea pretty much the whole time and Aldrea comes around to it much later and she's like, I was just lonely. There were no Andalite males around and I was at the appropriate age for an interest in males. I just, I love, that's like, that's like so Andalite and she's like so dispassionate about it. But I feel like she's just like super in denial, right? Oh, she's very much If there denial. had been an interesting Andalite around, I'd have cared nothing about Dak. That um, felt to me like she was lying to herself. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. definitely. But the thing that, the thing that I love about their dynamic in this book is that Dak is like way smarter than her and sees through her <laughs> every step of the way. Yeah. And yet, just for whatever reason. She checks the boxes for him, right? <laughs> At the end, he's like, with all her lies, all her inbred Andalite arrogance, all her manipulations, I loved her. There's something kind of sweet about that, I guess. <laughs> like, Weird, but it it's is. Sweet. But I think, it, I yeah. think it's like, despite the fact that she's using him, the, it's almost like it makes it more tolerable to read about that he's aware of it the whole time yes, than if it's that like that's something he accepts. He gets about, betrayed yeah. by her every time that she's lying to him. Mm-hmm. Instead, he's like, yeah, I'm going to have you followed because I don't trust you. Yeah, I guess I would be more, I would be definitely like weirded out, like creeped out by the relationship if she was actually like successfully taking him in. Mm-hmm. The fact that he sees through it and still chooses her. I mean, if that's what he wants. Yeah, I mean, it is, it is nice that he has the emotional intelligence to kind of understand where she's coming from and not 
to be offended by all the times that she screws him over more or less. I mean, you know, I think it could be, this could be a very different relationship. It might be nicer, but also like, yeah, sure. That's what he's into. Great. So I like, I mean, the relationship's super problematic, but I really do like this passage where he acknowledges his feelings for her for the first time. Mm-hmm. I liked it best when she was an Andalite. I could not care about a Chidu, which is the Hork-Bajira homeworld creature she morphs for the first time. I did care about Aldrea, the Andalite. She had taught me. She had shown me an entire universe unknown to my people. I was still greedy for knowledge, but Aldrea had begun to say that I knew all she knew. Was this true? It didn't matter. I needed Aldrea the way the leaves need Mother Sky. There was no one else for me to talk to. In many ways, I was no longer Hork-Bajir. But when we were together and I looked at her delicate shape, I knew that I was not Andalite either. (laughs) I feel like the most disturbing aspect of it is that he has literally never met anyone else who's his intellectual equal. Yeah. I guess that's yeah, not yeah, true. Yeah. I guess he met her family and now he's met some art. But he like is very much in a, a scarcity situation and like this is the first person who's ever like showed him the pleasures of intellectual thought and right. yeah. But I don't know. I just also like it's very Elfinger and Lauren to me. This like for whatever reason I'm super into like yeah. extra torso guy <laughs> or a girl with bl- girl with a, w- a nose and blonde hair. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah, I mean, there's something a little uncomfortable about the teacher-student dynamic that they have. Even though they are of similar ages, she is coming from a place of so much more experience of the universe that Mm -hmm. it's felt a little... Yeah, yeah. But I actually wanted to read the other other part where he he realizes how much he loves her, is that they're running away, having stolen the virus, and she turns against the Andalites, in, in horror for what they are planning to do in order to to try and save the hork And he says, I'd seen many brave deeds since the war had begun, but none braver than that, the Andalite girl turning against her own people to save mine. I cared very much for her then. I probably had before that, but that was when I finally realized it. With all her lies, all her inbred Andalite arrogance, all her manipulations, I loved her. Let's blow this place up. <laughs> I just I love that I thought that passage is very That's sweet. the kind of love declaration Rachel wants. It's absolutely <laughs> let's was. blow this place up. Not least because it's a dumbass decision to do right then. Which we should come back to all of the right. dumb decisions they make. But right. anyway. I thought that was a very sweet like he does. He actually does love her. And I don't as you said, I mean I think she's in denial for a lot longer, but then she becomes a, a Horkbajir Nathlet. Yeah. That's like so I said I've forgotten a lot about this book. Mostly what I remembered was Aldrea and Dak going around the planet, fighting some Yorks at some point, and then her being a forever. Hmm. Like, that was, like, that decision was what stuck with me. Not so much forever as for a tiny bit. <laughs> hey, long it, enough to have a kid. It occurs to me, sense. though, that this is the, both Chronicles books so far have ended with a cross-species Nothlet parentage revelation. Mm-hmm. Whoa. So I'm just wondering... Now that we have Tobias and Toby, <laughs> what other weird, um, whether this will happen in every single Chronicles There'll book be like a or multiple times, Tobin. multiple times throughout the series. It's just a really weirdly specific beat to hit twice That's true. in one series. It's, it's just like, let's remix all the same elements, but now we'll have the Doom romance also include the Nothlet thing, because why not? It's like, ah, oh, more cross-species love was one of my notes. Yeah. It is a very weird thing to come back to. Yeah, I mean, I feel like I'm not going to be like, oh no, the kids, don't show them a problematic relationship. Like, I feel like that is an overbeaten drum. But like, more just like, I don't know, I don't find it very satisfying, this romance. 
I when they were like at the end, they're like, there could be us. And they're like, for now, for now, for a while, we will have us. And I was like, yeah, I'm not feeling it. I agree. I agree. I like them. I like them as I like their dynamic and I like them as individual. I like the way they play off of each other, but I'm Mm -hmm. not invested in their relationship. Mm -hmm. I do not ship it. Yeah, no. Um, Can I ask one of the questions that I had about this? Yeah. The whole Yerk biology thing. So Visser 3 is born aboard ship, as we discussed, Mm -hmm. along with several hundred brothers and sisters and one twin, as you know, from the double number designation. Mm -hmm. You're telling me. (laughs) <laughs> that in one vat, three yerks turn into several hundred yerks. And yet you can tell that two of them are twins? How? What are you talking about? I think two yerks grow from one grub, is what they said. I don't really know what that means, though. And also, I like how he's just talking to his twin. He's like, oh yeah, I'm a twin, didn't you know? Twin has no effect on the story, never says anything. Completely irrelevant. And what a miracle that they both survived until 1998, <laughs> right? When did they grow to hate each other? Why isn't his twin mentioned in the Endlight Chronicles? It's because they hadn't come up with that plot point yet. (laughs) And also the thing where, like, Visitor 3 is the primary twin and the other guy's the secondary twin. Doesn't, like, he mentions it. It doesn't affect the story. Like, we don't see, like, yeah, he got to have a host because he's the primary twin. Like, no. It's just an Easter egg. (laughs) Exactly. And there are several We recognize you, Joe Bob. But it's, like, at least the Lerdethic or whatever is, like, mentioned in a way where, like, it makes sense in the... It's just like, and here's another description of a monster. Like, the twin thing was like, you're just putting this into, like, because you have to reference it. Like, this is not, you didn't work this into the story. That was one of the Easter eggs I was proud of myself for getting. What were the others? Like, looking it up. Uh, Esplin 9466, like, when they first, I was like, do I know that name? I yeah, feel like I know do. that name. And then I looked mm-hmm. it up. She remembered it better name. than Tobias, who's like, who was that year? You're like, Tobias, you were there. Hey, attention. <laughs> uh, and then the Lord of the Act vine creature from the jungle and then i had to i went back to remind myself which book it was in which we met jerahami for the first time mm-hmm. real fast jerahami and cat halpak halpak there was like a whole adventure to get them free correct yeah. and yet at the beginning of this book there's like a whole bunch of them living in the i valley. know isn't that an interesting i know it's mystery. very weird intriguing from i wonder if we'll ever learn we'll probably never hear from them again why. ever ever okay Great, looking forward to that. Also, one real bummer about reading this book was that uh, you already knew it was going to happen. I know. And it was going to be bad. Yeah. There's this thing where Dax like, it would be up to me to save my people. And I was like, but you're not going to do it. And I know that because this is a prequel. We already know that a quantum virus strikes. We're just waiting to find out where it comes from. Yeah. Just killing time until it shows up. I still don't understand how the whole, like, quantum virus thing, I feel the way that it was introduced in the Andalite Chronicles, Mm -hmm. does not accord with what happens in this book. Go on. So the virus thing is they notice that there's some hut that's under guard. They break in. She disguises herself as Aloran in order to break in. They do that. They discover that there's a virus that has, by the way, I'm just going to read this because I annoyed that heck out of me. They get in, they're talking to the computer, and they're like, hey, computer, what what is this thing? And it turns out it's a virus that's... Explain the exact purpose of virus Q118. Virus Q118 is a quantum virus. It is designed to attack a specific type of living creature at the subatomic level, bypassing all possible countermeasures. It is designed to cause death within minutes. What species is virus Q118 designed to attack? Pork-Bajir. Okay, we're all pissed. 
You have somewhere in this hut on this planet the technology to create a virus that attacks one specific type oh my of gosh, living that creature. Just occurred to me. And you have on that planet four types of living creatures. And you pick not the one that you actually want to take out. But that's amazing. The host. <laughs> why why Gray, why did they not think of this? <laughs> this is the worst plot hole. I was so mad. That my note for this is just a paragraph in all caps with lots of the F word. <laughs> Why? Yeah, that doesn't make any sense. I wonder if it's something like they couldn't do it to Yerkes because they had all this information about the Horcruxes genetic codes because the Arn built them, and so they had access to the Arn's database. Right, the Arn could have couldn't... put in a failsafe, like if the Horcruxes yeah. ever go rogue. And they couldn't, and they didn't have a year. I guess they could have captured a year, but like they but didn't then it's have. Like, but then, like, like why is a quantum virus a thing that other Andalites would know about? If right. It's really so Arn it's specific? not like they just invented it from the Arn. Alfinger had heard of a quantum virus. Is there a quantum virus that kills Andalites, and then they combine that with the Horkbajir data to create a Horkbajir quantum? Like, oh my gosh! Still, like, we don't know. Again, why would you not combine it with Yerk? Yeah, like it yeah, just yeah. it doesn't it doesn't make any sense. No, very, that very that's really it. valid. Wow. Yes. Wow. So there's that. But then also, what happens with the virus from the Andalite Chronicles? It sounds like what happened was Alaran was kind of fleeing from this battle on the Horkbajir homeworld. The homeworld was lost, and as a last ditch effort, he released the virus. Mm-hmm. It turns out no. What happened was these two idiots break into the hut, steal the virus. Good. Great. Fine. They're going to destroy it. Excellent. Well done. They leave not by sneaking back out disguised as Alarin, but by blowing the place up, (laughs) which it turns out not subtle. And people figure it out real damn fast. They run away into the woods with the cylinder full of virus that will destroy all of the hork on this world if they let it go. Put it in a bug ship. The bug ship of course, gets attacked and basically blows up. They wake up, realize they've lost the virus, and look up to find Dak's idiot friend running through the trees with an open (laughs) cylinder of virus that's just spreading its merry way through this world. And they're like, oh, shoot, run. So as the friend is dying from the virus that he has just released behind them, they're running through the woods like that's going to help. And then, the wind is blowing the other direction, right? <laughs> and then somehow the virus manages to go from that spot to taking over the entire world. But, like, not fast enough for them not to, like, have kids and for them to get those kids off world somehow. I'm very confused by all of it. Okay, but apparently Horkbutcher had kids very quickly. Sure. Because how much time do you think has passed since book 13? A few months. A few months? They have had a kid who is... Talking. Sure, sure. No, no. That's very <laughs> which, legit. Which, what? Like, how fast do... Like, Arctur are, like, large animals. Sure. Usually, size of animal is related to the gestational period. Maybe they lay eggs. Okay, like but chickens. it still... <laughs> it still needs to hatch. Sure, but, I mean, even imagining that, like... How long do ostriches take to be born and grow up? <laughs> I don't know. Great questions. Great but, questions. like, human intelligence takes as long to develop... Because it's really complicated, like, if you have a child who is a seer, who has human range of intelligence, she's not going to be able to, like, be conceived, be born, and start talking within, like, 
even within six months, if we say that, like, at this point, the Animorphs have been fighting for maybe a year, or maybe it's been six months since Book 13. Sure. We got some problems. But even if you take it as six months between the virus gets released and they contract this virus mm-hmm. and die. That's, that's, that's fair. How does their kid get off world? I was just hijacking your point to make my point about it's Toby a, being ridiculous. It's a good point. And that's all we have. Hey, everyone. Like we said, our audio went a little wonky at this point, so we're going to have to give you the rest of our very fascinating Herkvajir Chronicles content in a second part. But the first part of Gray's prediction of the next Chronicles book did survive, so we're going to give you that first. So, Gray, do you want to predict, speaking of your brilliant predictions, do you want to predict uh, what the next Chronicles book is going to be? So first you should predict what Chronicles it's going to be. Okay. And then... We will tell you what Chronicles it is, and you can look it up. I don't feel I have sufficient information to make this prediction. Well, you have to just guess. You what, have two points, and you can intuit the line. Andalite Chronicles, Arcogeo Chronicles. What species do you think we get next? Okay. I, I don't think there will be a tax on Chronicles, because who cares? <laughs> um, and because we got so much of them in the Andalite Chronicles. I will confirm this, if only to say I'm pretty sure Kay Applegate talked about writing a tax in Chronicles, and, like, dangled it out there as, like, a future possibility, and then was like, we're going to end the series before we get there. Yes, uh, Are there your chronicles? Is that your prediction? Yeah, that's my prediction. Nice. Do you want to see the cover? So, yeah, caveat. We may have lied about it being all Chronicles books, because... <laughs> but this one doesn't have the word Chronicles in it. It's just Visser. What the hell is this picture? <laughs> Gray's looking at the cover. Okay. It's amazing. This is, obviously, this, I, I assume this is Visser 3 as it is an Andalite, but he has a Thanos face and, like, the <laughs> most gigantic horse hooves. Just, like, they're disproportionately large. This cover goes out of its way to emphasize the torso-y nature of this <laughs> it does, Andalite. It does, indeed. Also, his weird, like, belly punch second abs. Yeah, what like, is happening in this whole area in here? Multiple sets of ribs, like... Very well, he weird. has human abs and then horse abs. He looks very rideable, I gotta say. <laughs> <laughs> and that's it for part one. Join us for part two, where we go, presumably, mad with the freedom of two episodes and spend another two hours talking about the Horpager Chronicles. With such topics as Alarin, colonialism, monocultures, things we learn about Andalites, this or three is a major creepazoid, muscle yurks, <laughs> problematic monster designations, And of course, Gray's prediction of Visser. See you next time for part two. If you want to find us, we are at Animorphology.com and at Animorphology on Twitter. Subscribe on Apple iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you're listening to this podcast. And don't forget to rate us, review us, and recommend us to your friends. And if you want to read along, you can find a link to the books on our website. Oh, no. I think I just remembered what the other chronicles are. There's <laughs> Elemist chronicles right there. God, I don't want to read those. <laughs>